The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. You go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a few different passages tonight because Paul makes reference to a number of Old Testament texts in this passage. And we'll start at verse 1. Even though we covered 1 through 5 last week, we'll start in verse 1 to pick up the context. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were also under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low or scattered in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try or test the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, last week we started um, and looked at uh, verses 1 through 5, and there are a number of things that are uh, important for us to remember as we proceed through the text tonight, and the first is, is that Paul is in a sense, making uh, an analogy or a parallel between the Israelites under the Old Covenant and now us in Christ under the New Covenant. And so the parallels are are going to be remarkable. In fact, what Paul's going to do is Paul is going to adapt his language for the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament Israel, in order to make the connection or the parallels abundantly clear to us. The other thing that he's going to do is he's going to emphasize the fact that it was all of the Israelites who experienced these things, which ends up being really important in terms of Paul's point and then what he's going to uh, get into in the next section. And so uh, Paul talks about being uh, under the cloud and pass through the sea, and notice it's, it's that all of our fathers... So. Paul is is telling the Corinthians, in a sense he's including the Corinthians, in the story of Israel. So that as Christians, Israel's story is now our story. The fathers of Israel are now our fathers. So we've been brought into the people of God, and so now the Old Testament isn't, uh, isn't a Jewish book per se. It is a Christian book to be read through the lens of Christ. And so his point was is that, is that God actually did an amazing thing for the children of Israel. All of them were under the protective guiding cloud of, uh, of his presence. 
all pass through the sea, through the Old Testament redemption called the Exodus, all, and this is where Paul really adjusts the language, all were baptized into Moses. Of course, they weren't literally baptized into Moses. What Paul's doing is he's making a parallel between Christ and Moses. Um, and in a sense, the idea of being baptized into Moses, they, they were identified with Moses as God's redeemer, right? As the redeemer sent for the people of Israel. And so just as we're baptized into Christ, Paul, in a sense, figuratively says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then he says, and they all ate the same spiritual food, okay? which, of course, in, in terms of the Old Testament is a reference to the manna. But when he says they all ate the same spiritual food, you know what the, the analogy is that he's making? Is he's making that now to the Lord's Supper. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Again, making a parallel to the Lord's Supper. They all did this. They all ate the manna. There wasn't somebody that says, no, I don't want manna today. I'd, I'd rather have a cheeseburger. Every, all of them ate manna. All of them drank from the same uh, water that came forth from the rock. And when Paul says it's spiritual, he doesn't mean somehow that it's conveying the spirit or he doesn't mean that it's non-material. What he means is it's supernatural. The provision of manna was supernatural. The provision of water from the rock was supernatural. And then Paul says something that is, that's really stunning. And that rock followed them. Of course, we don't actually have that explicitly stated in the Old Testament, but we have a rock that appears at the beginning of their journey in Exodus 17 and also at the end of their journey in Numbers 20. And so the implication is is that rock followed them and that rock provided water for them in the wilderness and then Paul drops the bombshell and the rock was Christ. It's just amazing. And we talked about that last week, so I won't rehearse that for you tonight. Then, so what what Paul does is he, he says... There are these, these wonderful privileges, right? Protection, provision, guidance. Um, there is uh, the sustenance. There's spiritual food. There's spiritual drink. There's all of these wonderful privileges, and they all partook of those privileges. But partaking of external privileges does not guarantee that you really partake of grace, Because he says in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, by the way, that's, as we pointed out, that's an understatement. With all of them, except two. I'd say that's most, right? So most of them, God was not well pleased. And then he says, New American Standard laid low in, in the wilderness, it's, uh, they were scattered. That is, their corpses were scattered. God, over the course of 40 years, littered the Sinai Peninsula with the dead bodies of unbelieving Israelites. That's the point. And the irony is, is that all of those that dropped dead in the wilderness, under the judgment of God, all had external privileges that did them no good. Scary, right? Scary. And again, I don't want to re-preach the whole thing, but you have to actually um, 
come to grips with the, the significance of what Paul is saying. You can be baptized, and yet if, if you don't know Christ, baptism profits you nothing. You can eat the Lord's Supper, but if you don't know Christ, eating and drinking the bread and the cup profits you nothing. In fact, you could argue that not knowing Christ and partaking of the externals is, in fact, um, in increasing your condemnation. And so it's possible to have all of the external things down and do all the right things, and yet, at the end of the day, be one that God is not well pleased with. Right? Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to move from sort of this general principle regarding external privileges to giving us an, a series of examples. And he's going to, to bookend this section with verses 6 and 11. And verse 6, he says, Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they, as they craved. So, Paul sees the Old Testament as setting forth examples for us, all right? Now, believe it or not, that in and of itself is a controversial statement in some places, okay? Um, Paul uses the Old Testament in a number of ways, right? For instance, Paul looks at the Old Testament in terms of redemptive history. That is, God God is revealing his redemptive work throughout Israel's history. And so there are events and the chronology of those events and the interrelationship of those events are incredibly important, especially as it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you can think, for instance, of uh, Galatians chapter 3 is just one of those examples where Paul is talking about the promise, he's talking about the law coming in, and he's talking about the relationship of the law to the promise and how the law does what actually points us to the coming of faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's this, there's this wonderful sense of redemptive history, and Paul will use the Old Testament that way because that's what the Old Testament is about. As Paul looks at the Old Testament in terms of redemptive history, he looks at the Old Testament uh, through what we could call Christocentric lenses. He sees Christ in the Old Testament. I mean, chapter 10, verse 4, and the rock was Christ is just a preeminent example. But Paul does more with the Old Testament than just tell the Old Testament story and how it leads up to Christ. Paul also will, in a sense, draw out um, theology from the Old Testament. Right? There are many places where Paul draws out the theology that's in the Old Testament. So, for instance, Romans chapter 4, what does Paul do? Paul uses Abraham and then David from Psalm 32 to demonstrate that justification has always come by faith alone. That's, that's the theological point that he makes, and he uses the Old Testament to prove it. But Paul also uses the Old Testament as example. He uses the Old Testament in terms of, of 
ethical example of how we are supposed to live or maybe in this case, negatively set forth of what we are not supposed to do, all right? And by the way, the New Testament does this with the Old Testament regularly. So, for instance, uh, James, in James chapter 5, gives us um, Job as an example of... Anybody? Uh, patience, patience. He uses Elijah as an example for prayer. Now, you know what's interesting is the way that he uses Elijah as an example for prayer is he says that there was uh, three years where there was no rain, and then uh, Elijah prayed, right? And then, of course, you have... Uh, James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man, or the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's in reference to Elijah. You go back to the passage that James is referring to, doesn't even say Elijah specifically prayed. It's just implied, but he just uses Elijah as an example. And then he says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, in a real sense, Elijah is just an ordinary believer. And we can learn from him. And so you see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. This is, you know, this is probably the classic passage because you have Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint after Old Testament saint illustrating one great principle, right? And that is the righteous live by faith, okay? So when Paul starts to use these Uh, these Old Testament passages as an example, he's using them as an ethical example to show us, in this case, what we are not supposed to do. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? And by the way, when Paul says all Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16, what is he explicitly thinking about? The Old Testament, what he is about to say, he's saying explicitly about the Old Testament. Now, we would say implicitly it refers to the new as well, but explicitly he's thinking of the Old Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. Think about that. Paul says the Old Testament's good for doctrine, right? And then it's good for correction. Correction is telling us what we're doing that is wrong, right? Reproof, right, is the idea of bringing conviction and then instruction in righteousness. So Paul looked at the Old Testament and says... The Old Testament actually gives us the information, the revelation from God of how God wants us to live. It, of course, is seen through the lens of Christ. He doesn't say, you know, therefore go take a lamb to church on Saturday. There are things in the Old Testament that obviously are fulfilled, but it is profitable for instruction in righteousness. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians. Just flip over to um, just a few pages back to Romans 15. 
This, this, by the way, is very similar to the two verses in chapter 10. Romans 15 and verse 4, Paul says this, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so Paul looks at the Old Testament And he sees that Old Testament as actually being written, not just for the instruction of of the Old Testament people of God, not just for a people in a place in, in history, but that Old Testament is written for us. And as that Old Testament is written for us, it is designed so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, you know know what this means? It means that Christians need to be more into their Old Testament. That's your Old Testament. And it is about 65 to 70% of the Bible. And we, as Christians, should be in the Old Testament. I love what Dr. Beakey said about the Puritans. They were just as much at home in Habakkuk as they were in Romans. Right? We actually are probably... Uh, poorer because we don't jump into the Old Testament like we should. Now, you're never going to get cheated in, in, in our preaching from just hearing, you know, the Pauline canon, you know. That's what, that's what uh, Protestant evangelicals love more than anything else is basically Romans and, and Ephesians and Philippians, right? And so, you know, as long as somebody's preaching those, you're okay. But, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to preach. I mean, think about it. Think about the books we've gone through. You know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Genesis. Yeah, how could I forget Genesis, right? Yeah. So, I mean, just on and on. Uh, Isaiah. Yeah, seven years in Isaiah. That was fun. And Why? Well, because it all points to Christ. And so we can dive into the Old Testament and, and reap the benefits of seeing the whole counsel of God through the lens of the person and work of Christ. Now, by saying that, I am not saying that the only way you look at the Old Testament is How do you get from that Old Testament text and then make a beeline to the cross? That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, Paul uses these Old Testament texts as an example not to point us ultimately to Christ in a sense, but to show us what we ought not to do. So using them as an example. So when Paul says these things were written as Uh, He uses the word tupoi. These things are written as types for us. In other words, what he's saying is, is that Israel, the Israelites, prefigured us. 
And if we look at them, then we can learn from them. And by the way, if we persist in the sins that they persisted in, then we can count on the judgments that they experienced. That's his point. Here's the great part of verse 6. I love this. So these things happened as types for us. And then here it is. So that we would not be lusters of evil just as they also lusted. That's, what, that's how I would translate it. Lusters of evil, all right? So the lessons are going to be negative. There's no doubt. Don't be like this, all right? Um, by the way, let me just say this real quick too. There's a bad way to preach examples in the Bible too, all right? There's a bad way to do it. Uh, there's a Sunday school way of doing it, not Sunday school here, <laughs> but there's a bad way of doing examples in the Old Testament that goes something like this. Be strong like Samson, be brave like David, be bold like Daniel, all right? That is not what we're talking about here, all right? That is a form of moralism that does not help anybody, okay? You know, slay your giants, right? Um, That's nonsense, okay? The story of David killing Goliath is not to teach you how to slay the giants that haunt you or that scare you, right? Just as sure as Jesus walking on the water is not to teach you that Jesus can calm the storms of your life, okay? Right? There's a cheap, chintzy, plastic way of dealing with the Bible that we should have no interest in, all right? But make no mistake, Paul's using these as an example, and so here he says, um, so that we would not, so these things are written as types, as patterns, examples to us, so that we in turn wouldn't be lusters after evil just like they lusted. And so uh, ESV, that we might not desire evil as they did, uh, NIV, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Now, here's, here's the fascinating thing about this little phrase. Lusters, all right? It's not really like a very common word, is it? I probably haven't used it this week, right? Luster. Well, a luster is, that, that word is only used here in the New Testament. And it is a personal noun. Now, the word lust, all right, or lustful is used in the New Testament many times, but this is a personal noun. A luster is used only here. And the reason is that it's used here is because Paul is drawing on another place in the Old Testament where the word luster is used, and that is in Numbers chapter 14 and ver, or Numbers chapter 11. And this, this is great because the, the whole picture is they're going to be dropping dead in the wilderness because they wanted meat. Okay? Numbers 11. So, so, just paying attention to these little connections is, is very rewarding. So Paul uses the word luster. The only other place the word luster is used is in Numbers chapter 11, all right? And it is in Numbers chapter 11 that the people are grumbling against manna and they want meat. What's the issue in Corinth? Idle meat. 
Okay? It's not an accident. And of course, what does God do? God provides them with quail, and while they're eating the quail, the anger of the Lord burns against them. You remember this, right? And a bunch of them are killed. And it says that they had, let me get it just right for you. They'd craved meat, they were buried, and you could translate the phrase, they named the place, this is Numbers 11, 33, 34, they named the place the Graves of Craving. Okay. The Graves of Craving. Okay. In other words, it was their lust for meat that led to their deaths in the wilderness and the name of the place was the graves of craving. And so the application ends up being obvious. So the Corinthians are, are hankering after, they're lusting after idle meat. They are the new lusters, the new cravers. And Paul says, this stuff in the Old Testament happened so that we wouldn't be lusters after evil like they lusted. Okay? And so the connection is, is really great. Paul's also going to do something else once he gets to verse uh, 7. And that is he's going to move from all of them, from 1 to 5, now to some of them. All right? So all of them had the privilege. And then he's going to start drawing out. Some of them did this. Some of them did that. Some of them did this. And so in other words, the idea is, is that as he goes through from sin to sin... The, the Israelites, even though they were privileged with external privileges, were not exempt from lusting after these various things. And some of them were guilty of this, and some of them were guilty of that, and some of them were guilty of this. Now, the question, before we dig into these texts, is why does Paul use these four examples in the way that he does? You have idolatry, immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling. Okay? All right? So, on a scale from 1 to 10, how bad is idolatry? Okay, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give it a 10. Uh, what about acting immorally, sexually immoral? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah we'll put a 10, yeah. Um, how about testing the Lord? Well, that, that doesn't actually sound as bad, does it? I mean, maybe, yeah, that's a 10 too, right? Um, and then the last one, grumbling. Oh, now hold on a second, grumbling. See, I don't have any, any, <laughs> yeah, we, we all want to say grumbling. Well, Paul just went from 10 to 1. Right? Because the reason that we think grumbling doesn't sound nearly as bad is we don't do that yucky stuff, right? So I'm not an idolater. I don't bow down, you know, to Baal and, and I don't worship idols. So whew, thank goodness I'm not an idolater. Of course, let's not talk about the things in my heart that I worship that aren't silver, gold, or stone, right? So, yeah, idolatry, that's terrible. That sounds awful. Um, and then sexual immorality, of course, that's bad right? It's terrible. That's very bad. And so that's, uh, that's those yucky sins, and I stay away from those things, except, of course, in my heart 
where there is a treason, one that poisons all my loves. But we won't talk about that. We won't talk about the Sermon on the Mount and how the Sermon on the Mount deals with uh, sexual sin. Uh, and then we go to testing the Lord, and we're like, well, that's kind of an ambiguous one, isn't it? I mean, testing God. Um, I mean, after all, doesn't it say in Malachi, test me and I'll show you that, uh, you know, that uh, I'm trustworthy. And so we have all these little caveats and ways that we, this is what we do. We worm around things that we take to be more respectable. And what is it that determines what we think is more respectable? Well, it's the ones we do. So then you get to grumbling. Grumbling, I would just remind you, is also a 10. Now, I doubt any of you bowed down to an idol today. But I bet if we had judgment day honesty, there'd be quite a few of us would have to raise our hand to say we grumbled today. Right? Just remember... God's calculations on what makes sin, sin, they're much different than our calculations. Our calculations start with a very simple category. Is this something I do or don't do? Well, if I do do it, then it's not that bad. I hope that God actually takes these texts and roots all these things out of our hearts. So, commentators discuss, why does Paul use these four things, right? Um, Some people think that he just is making a sort of a random sin list, right? Paul has his sin lists, right? And so this is just like just random, you know, he just throws out four that were off the top of his head. Other people actually think, no, he chooses these carefully, because of their relevance to the Corinthians, okay? So, which one do you think is right? It's sort of a random sin list, or he's actually being very strategic in what's relevant to the Corinthians. I'm going to go with the strategery, all right? And that's not a real word, by the way. Um, Paul's going to take these. Now, for sure, each one of these sins, they leapfrog with each other. Okay, one is going to then point to the other one, and then it's going to point to the other one, all right? So there is, there's sort of an internal connection, and we'll see those, but he begins with, in verse 7 with this, do not be idolaters, just as some of them, just as it has been written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So the command is simple. Don't be idolaters just as some of them. And in the Corinthian context, clearly relevant, right? Because Paul is going to argue, in fact, in this very same chapter a little bit later, that going into temples to eat the meat, sacrifice the idols, is an act of idolatry. Okay? So the fact that he starts with idolatry, don't be idolaters just as some of them, uh, is, is, is directly relevant to the Corinthian situation. And here's 
the thing that we need to remember and needs to be pointed out to us, and that is that um, we can be just as guilty of idolatry as the Corinthians were and as the ancient Israelites were. Remember the definition of an idol. An idol is something that you worship and seek to obey for the pleasure the deity offers. So whatever is in my heart that I'm worshiping, that I'm exalting, that's, that's an idol. And the fact is, is that we may have a, a whole pantheon of idols in our hearts. We may have one or two that just stand out as, 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 as king, right? But make no mistake about it. You don't need a, a statue made out of wood or stone to be an idolater. And you don't need to go into a, a pagan temple in order to be an idolater. All you need to do is to allow the desires of your own heart to be elevated to deity status so that you worship and serve them. And so, your career can be an idol, and money can be an idol, and sex can be an idol, and friends can be an idol, and sports can be an idol, and your horse can be an idol, and your cat can be an idol. I know that's hard to believe. But anyway, it's true, it could be, all right? And so anything that we elevate to that status where, where I'm saying, this is what I live for. This is what's important to me. This is the most important thing. So this is what I worship. This is my God. And so what is it about idolatry? In idolatry, you position yourself in relation to your deity in order to gain as much enjoyment and pleasure as you can possibly get. And it is, it is in that act of worship that you say, so I'm giving you your due, give me mine. If I sacrifice my family... and spend all of my time working, then that deity better pay off by giving me the accolades, the raises, the promotions, the vata boys that my heart craves for more than anything else. So don't be mistaken and think that only people in ancient times could be guilty of idolatry. Now, in the text, Paul says, gives us, a, it gives us a quotation. He says, They sat, the people sat to eat and drink, and they arose to play. This is a quotation from Exodus 32, second part of verse 6. You know what's happening in Exodus 32? Moses is up on the mountain, and the people get impatient. 
we don't know what's happened to this Moses guy. And then they have the great idea. We should make for ourselves a God. Aaron, oh, Aaron, Aaron, collects all the gold that they plundered the Egyptians, right? So there's a lot of gold. Makes a golden calf. By the way, if you read Exodus 32 carefully, Aaron presents the golden calf to the Israelites as Yahweh. You ever read 32 slow enough to notice that? Okay. Presented as Yahweh. The people then are bowing down, worshiping, and it's in that context, 32.6 comes, and the people sat down to eat and drink. This is not, they were having a picnic in the desert. To eat and drink is actually the idea of engaging in pagan, idolatrous worship. All right? So you, you see why Paul's using this. Okay, so to sit there and eat and drink, is they're having a meal in the presence of their new God. By the way, when, when uh, uh, Moses and Joshua start to come down the mountain, Joshua says, the sound of war is in the camp. And Moses says, ah, that's not war. We better get down there. Moses confronts Aaron, and Aaron tells one of the, 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 the worst lies ever. This golden calf just like popped out of the fire. It was really weird. They sat down to eat and drink, that is to engage in idolatrous worship, and then they rose to play. And that's not monopoly. They didn't say, okay, we're full, let's now play board games. Okay? The play is a euphemism for sex. Okay? And the reason we know that is not only because of the context of, of Exodus 32, but also back when uh, Isaac and Rebekah are in the site of, um, of, uh, of Abimelech, Abimelech sees Isaac playing with Rebekah. And you know what he says? She ain't your sister, you liar. Why? They weren't playing, you know, Twister. <laughs> Maybe they were, okay? But they were engaged in physical intimacy. To rise to play is the idea of they were arising to engage in illicit sexual activity that was directly connected with their pagan worship. By the way, throughout the history of paganism, sex is always related to pagan worship. And so, Paul doesn't explicitly say this here, but it could be that as the Corinthians were going to the pagan temples to actually eat their meat sacrificed to idols, you know what else took place in pagan temples? They consorted with the temple prostitutes. And so here, Paul is saying they arose to play, and so he says, don't be idolaters. I mean, here they were, the people of God, and they'd, they'd I mean, this, is, this should just really just blow our minds because here they were, they'd been delivered from the land of Egypt. They'd seen the ten plagues. They'd been brought safely through the Red Sea. 
They saw Pharaoh's army drown in the Red Sea. They saw God provide manna in the wilderness. They saw God provide for them over and over again. And yet, at the first opportunity, at the first opportunity, what do they do? They, be, they engage in idolatry that included excessive eating and drinking and sexual immorality. And you say to yourself, how in the world can those people go from those experiences to saying, where's Moses, let's make a false god, and let's engage in pagan idolatry. And you say, how in the world do they go from there to there? Well, before you get too hard on the Israelites, you might want to just ask yourself, how can I go from knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and the tomb is empty, and the Spirit of God has made me alive, how do I go from that to the filth and the Garbage that I engage in. In some ways, what we do is worse than what's described in Exodus 32. We have more light. We have the indwelling spirit. We've experienced the grace of God that is actually um, exponentially greater than what they experienced in the Red Sea. And so Paul's first word of admonition is this, do not be idolaters just as some of them. Then he says, verse 8, neither let us fornicate just as some of them fornicated and 23,000 fell in one day. So the first first, um, uh, exhortation is, to not be idolaters, and now the second is avoid fornication. And I think that the the connection, obviously, is they rose to play, and now it is the second admonition, avoid sexual immorality. Now, Paul has had to tell the Corinthians this already a number of times. He had to rebuke the Corinthians in chapter 5 because there was somebody that was uh, sleeping with his stepmother and the Corinthians were actually proud of how, um, of, of how uh, liberal they were in, in, and how loving they were, right? And so Paul had to say, that kind of immorality doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. You got to cast the evil man out from your midst, he turns around and, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, do not be deceived. This is the word, right? Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why do you think he needs to say, do not be deceived? Because people who engage in these sins unrepentantly, oftentimes will talk themselves into thinking that they're right with God. And Paul says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither adulterers, nor fornicators, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor homosexuals, the effeminate. Paul uses two words there. We looked at this when we were back there. One is for the active partner in the, in, in the homosexual act, and the other is for the passive partner. Paul actually condemns both. And then he says, and such, and what's the critical word? Were some of you, right? 
but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been justified in the name of our God and in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the idea here, Paul says very, very clearly, don't fornicate as they fornicated. And 23,000 fell in one day. Now, if you're an astute Bible reader, you'll know that he's referring to the incident at Baal Peor in Numbers 25, where 24,000 fell in one day. Okay? Now, there's a discrepancy. In the next chapter in Numbers, there's a census that's taken, and the number 23,000 is there. All right? Now, I just I want to tell you that some people look at discrepancies like this and they freak out about them, okay? And to tell you the truth, they've never bothered me one bit, okay? Really. So let me just go over this quickly because it is completely just academic foo-foo, whatever that is. Some people say that this is an unintentional discrepancy, and Paul just just accidentally exchanges the numbers, all right? 24 in, in Numbers 25, and then 23 in Numbers 26, and when he writes this, he just inserts 23 instead of 24, all right? And, okay, um, you ever mix things up? Never, right? Have I ever been preaching about Isaac and kept saying Abraham? Or have I ever been preaching about Jacob and kept saying Isaac? Or have I ever been preaching about Joseph and kept saying Jacob, right? I mean, it happens, right? But here's the thing is that Paul's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, okay? So if there's a discrepancy and Paul's confused, that seems like like a mistake, Um. There are other suggestions that say that Paul does this intentionally. Um, Calvin is, is quite um, interesting. He says 23,500 died in one day, and Paul rounds up. Okay. I, I have no problem with that. I don't know how, exactly how he knows it was 23,500. 1,500, but that's the, that's the suggestion. Um, a lot of other commentators say what Paul's doing is he's talking about the 23,000, but then there were also a number of others that perished on that day as well, not just the 23,000 at the specific incident at Baal Peor, and so Paul is um, including others who perished. Um, this is the most creative to me, um, So Paul's pulling from the 3,000 who died in Exodus 32, which he just made reference to, connecting it with the 24,000 here, but instead of saying 24, he says 23 because he's thinking of the three back in 32. And so he's bringing the punishments together is what he's doing. He's merging the punishments, and the way that he does it is he takes the 3,000 and the 24,000 and says 23,000. Now, that 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 doesn't seem overly compelling to me. Um, but here's, here's the bottom line. 
I don't know. Okay. And it doesn't bother me in the least. Okay. My faith doesn't hang on the missing 1,000. Okay. My confidence in God's word doesn't, doesn't depend on the missing 1,000. All right? So take whatever option you like, look up some more, make up one of your own if you want. Um, but the reference, the reference is to Numbers 25. Does anybody remember what happens before Numbers 25? If you say Numbers 22 to 24, you'd be correct. Does anybody anybody remember what happened in Numbers 22 to 24? Balak wants to, he's, he's worried about all of these Israelites that are moving into town. And so he's going to hire the prophet, Balaam, and he offers Balaam a bunch of money to curse Israel. Balaam says, I can't say anything unless Yahweh, and that he, he uses God's divine name, Unless Yahweh tells me. So let me go inquire. And God says, don't go with him. He says, I can't go with him, you. Because Yahweh told me I can't go with you. And so then they go back and tell Balak, and they, he won't come with us. Well, offer him more money. So then they go and offer him more money. And then Balak says, well, maybe I didn't hear right the first time. Let me ask again. And so he goes and he asks, and God is, gives him permission to go. And then you remember what happens. The angel of the Lord stands in the way. The donkey actually stops, goes over this way, and Balaam's beating on the donkey. And then he goes over this way, and he's beating on the donkey. And then the donkey turns around and says, what's your problem? (laughs) And here's the most amazing thing in the whole passage. Balaam talks back to the donkey. And so anyway, so then... Um, the angel of the Lord manifests himself, and then what does he do? He says, you know what? It's a good thing that donkey actually went to the left and then went to the right, because I was just going to kill you. And so when you go, you better only say what I say you can say. And so Balaam goes up, gets on one position, looks over the people of Israel, and you know what he does? He blesses them. And Balak is like, what are you doing? I asked you to curse him. Now you're blessing him. And so, well, maybe, maybe if we do it over here, then you could actually curse him. And so he goes over there. And then Balaam starts giving messianic prophecies. And then finally, Balak is like, forget you. And they go home. Well, the problem is, the very next passage as the Moabite women coming into the Israelite camp and they begin fornicating with the Israelite men. This is the incident known as the incident at Baal Peor. And there they are fornicating, rampant. In fact, it was so rampant that at one point, an Israelite man who is named and a Midianite woman who is named are fornicating in front of the tabernacle, and 
Phinehas goes and he takes a spear and he runs the spear through both of them while they're fornicating in front of the tabernacle and the anger of the Lord was appeased, atoned for by Phinehas' zeal. And God wipes out all of the fornicating Israelites in one day. 24 Thousand. Now, the interesting thing is that later in the book of Numbers, unbeknownst to us from 22 to 24 and 25, later in the book of Numbers, what we find out is that this was all Balaam's idea. Balaam was the one who put the stumbling block in front of the children of Israel. By the way, John will pick this up in Revelation 2.14. And so what happens at Baal Peor is actually the strategy of Balaam himself. He's not going to be able to curse the people. God's not going to let him. So he's going to stumble the people through sexual immorality. And so... Paul says, don't be idolaters. Some of them were. Let us not fornicate. As some of them fornicated. And 23,000 perished in one day. Relevance to the Corinthians, and the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Here were people that were idolatrous, had hearts that were filled with lust and immorality. The Corinthians were quite a crew. But what about the relevance to us? If all we did was say, look at how this applies to the Corinthians. Shame on those Corinthians. Let's close in prayer. I would be doing you a disservice. And I'd be doing myself a disservice. The very last verse of 1 John is this. Little children, guard yourselves. From idols. Idols abound. Idols abound. Idols abound for teenagers and for middle aged people and for old people. Do not be an idolater. An idolater will not. Inherit the kingdom of God. And just as sure as that was true for the Corinthians and true for the Israelites, it's true for us. That idol that you love will take you to hell. 
let it go. Turn from it. It will not save you in the day of trouble. What about let us not fornicate? Well, make no mistake about it. Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake about it. Hebrews 13.4, adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. And let's just make sure that we're abundantly clear. We may not have concubines and mistresses like they did in the Roman Empire. But digital concubines abound. And pornography is every bit as much sexual immorality is actual fornication with another person. And so we live in an age where hooking up with people is the norm. And among so-called millennials, it seems that the sexual ethic among millennials is Uh, among professing Christians is not all that much different than millennials who don't profess to be Christians. We take sex incredibly casually. We think that it's just something that, uh, that that we just do. Well, that's the Corinthians. Food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food. Implication... The body's for sex. Sex is for the body. If you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. If if you have an urge, what do you do? You go have sex. Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Don't be deceived. If you're a fornicator and you do not repent, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. I don't care how many times you've raised your hand, how many times you've been baptized, how many times you signed a card, how many times you prayed. If you don't repent, you won't go to heaven. Young people, make sure that you're not just drinking the Kool-Aid of our culture that says it's okay because it's not. Same-sex relationships are not okay. Sex outside of marriage is not okay. Sex with a digital image is not okay. Period. God's standards don't change. And you better take it seriously. Because just as sure as God dropped 24,000 Israelites in one day, You will reap what you sow. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. To those who sow to the flesh, they will reap corruption. You have a choice to make. I'm either by God's grace going to go the way of God's word, 
or I'm going to go my own way. If you go your own way, you'll reap the whirlwind. And you may reap it in ways that you could never imagine. And your idols and your illicit sex will drag you down to condemnation. And so, today's the day of salvation. Repent. Today's the day where you can run straight to the cross, find forgiveness. Guess what? Jesus forgives fornicators. Jesus cleanses idolaters. The gospel is only good news if you know what state you're in. And if you are undone and you are a sinner and you know the idols of your heart and you know the sins that have stained your soul, make your way straightway to the cross of Jesus where there is forgiving, forgiveness and cleansing and power to be changed. Not saying that there won't be a battle or there won't be a struggle. But thanks be to God for the Holy Spirit and the triumphant grace of a risen Savior who helps us to fight our sin and not to remain unrepentant on our way to hell. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that you would help us by your grace to take these words to heart. Father, these are strong words, they're sobering words, but they're true words. We pray, Father, that you would break through hardened hearts tonight. We pray that you would comfort the afflicted. We pray, Father, for those that, are, that feel guilty because of their sins and haunted because of their sins, and they're doing their best to turn from those things. And I pray tonight you would give them the comfort of the gospel and assurance, and I pray that you would give them power Father, for those that, that, that could not care less, we pray that you would awaken them and help them, Father, to see the, the, the terrors of your threats and your judgments. We pray for all of us, Lord, that you would help us to give heed to your word. Father, may we not be among those who think we stand So, Father, we ask that all of us would take heed. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.